0: From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast.
1: Many
2: Canadians are still displeased with driving habits, despite the fact that bad habits are dropping. When it comes to a new poll from Research Co, Mario Canseco, the president of said company, joining me. Mario, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Great to be here with you. Oh, it's great to be here with you. So let's get right into this poll because there's a lot of people that are listening to this show that are currently driving around as we speak. So this new online survey, a representative national sample, says that 46% of Canadians believe that drivers in their city or their town are actually worse than they were five years ago. Break this down for me, Mario.
1: You know, We've been asking this question since 2018. It's a fun survey. People really uh, tell us what they see on the road. And we had a moment during the pandemic when the numbers were starting to trend in the right direction. We had 44% of Canadians who said things are about the same. 39% who told us it was worse. It dropped to 30% in 2021. So we had only 3 out of 10 Canadians who said, yeah, drivers are getting worse. Now that we're uh, much later in, in life uh, and we have left COVID-19 behind us, the numbers are back to where they used to be. Practically half of Canadians telling us last year or this year that the drivers in their city or town are worse than they were five years ago. So we had a bit of a pandemic bomb. A nice uh, sort of side effect of COVID-19 was that drivers appear to be getting better. But um, we're, we're back to the situation we had in 2018, 2019.
2: Well, you know what? I love analytic. Maybe it's the old baseball guy in me. But I want to get to this number here <laughs> totally. because half of Canadians. But trust me, when I saw that I was interviewing Kinseco today, I got fired up. With all due respect, we'll talk about that later. He's my Uh,
1: long-lost cousin uh, from Cuba. Yeah,
2: mine too. It's okay. Um, How about this one? Half of Canadians, and this one's right on the equator at 50%, recently witnessed a car taking up two or more spots in a parking lot. That would drive me crazy, and it actually has.
1: It is really uh, high. I mean, it's it's one out of two, right? It's not something that you should be looking at. It's not a situation where you're trying to park on the street and you sort of missed it. You know, it's pretty signaled, right? You need to be within the lines. And we have 50% of Canadians who say that over the past month, they saw somebody taking up two or more spots in a parking lot. Uh, the champions when it comes to this behavior are Albertans, 59%. So it's the highest in the entire country.
2: I'm not surprised. I don't know at if all. it's the
1: trucks. It's or totally it the, the fact trucks. That they can't park, well, you know, it's significantly higher than the rest of the Canadian average.
2: Uh, as soon as you said Alberta, I don't think there was anybody that was driving around <laughs> that didn't say, yeah, it's Alberta.
1: <laughs> it's yes, okay. We're not talking about a small sedan here.
2: Yes, and you're not talking about a small sample size either. I appreciate that you've done this (laughs) for the last five years. Um, Of all the things that you've covered, Mario, what is one of the things when it comes to driving habits or driving pet peeves that really sticks out to you? What do people just really have a problem with when it comes to drivers?
1: The number one behavior is drivers who don't signal before they turn. It's at 59% across the country. We, I'd like to say we all experience it. We all have been in that situation where you're waiting for somebody and you see the brake light and you think, what's going on? Is it an emergency or what's happening? And then the person turns without signaling. It's down from last year. Last year, it was 69%. So that is actually interesting in the sense that we're starting to see some of these behaviors dropping in some parts of the country, particularly here in BC. When I started asking this question in 2018, 2019 BC was at the top of all of these things. Drivers not signaling, yes, 70%. Cars taking up two or more spaces, yes, 60%. Now we're down to 58% and 43% on those. So Albertans are climbing the charts, and the bad behaviors in BC are dropping when we compare it to what we had in the last five years.
2: Do you know the one thing that I'm both impressed with and still frustrated with when it comes to driving around the lower mainland, and I know this is a smaller area than maybe you've been uh, researching, but merging Merging has always been something before. For example, when I go over the Lionsgate Bridge, it's almost an art form. The zipper, you know, one car from the left, one car from the right, and you go back and (laughs) forth. It's almost like it was, uh, you know, genetically inherited. But then you go out to the burbs, and everybody just kind of tries to shoehorn their way in, and it's a little bit of frustration. I'm not saying that everybody does it, but I think there is a math to this, which actually helps you go faster if everybody merges properly coming uh, onto the highway or getting off the highway, and it just seems that sometimes there's, that one person that just seems to be, uh, you know, I guess the domino effect, if you will.
1: It happens consistently. You know, we see it in the survey, how many people are telling us that cars are turning right or left from incorrect lanes. This is a 35% in Canada and a 30% in, in BC. I was chatting with a friend who recently moved to BC and had to take the a, a test to actually drive a car. And he's saying to me, I'm, I was so nervous and you have to be there all the time. You have to grab the wheel with both hands. I'm like, maintain the same way you're driving. You know, think every time that you're driving that somebody's actually testing you because this is the best way in which we can see some of these behaviors dropping. We've all now grown uh, in, into a specific drivers who aren't really paying as much attention to the road as we did when we were tested for the first time. So if we can all go back to that moment, things would be a little bit easier.
2: You can find out Mario's research at uh, researchco.ca. Mario, thank you for making time for me this morning. We're going to chew on your information all afternoon.
1: My pleasure, Rob. Anytime. Rob Fain for Jill Bennett
2: for one final time. It's been an awesome week. We've been covering a lot of different stuff, but I love when we can get back to uh, birthdays and cool moments in Vancouver history. It is something that is near and dear to my heart, and it is near and dear To the heart of the man who joins me right now, the curator of the BC Sports Hall of Fame, Jason Beck, kind enough to join me. Jason, good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rob. Good to hear from you. Well, great to be heard and right back at you. And, you know, it was interesting. I was just kind of scouring, and for some reason I just thought, you know, let me check the birthday of uh, GM Place slash Rogers Arena. It just happened to be yesterday. So I was kind of like, oh, you know, what a lucky find for me. But when you think of this building, which is now, I wouldn't call it long in the tooth by any stretch of the imagination, but nearly 30 years right smack downtown, what are some of the great moments in your estimation when it comes to that particular building?
3: There's been so many. I mean, that jumps out. I think for most, it has to be you know the the golden goal and in 2010, uh, Sidney Crosby scoring in overtime to to win the uh, the the gold medal in men's ice hockey at the 2010 Olympics. I mean, that's that's probably the one most most people would would point to. But uh, you know, there's been. some um, fantastic Canuck memories and moments there. I mean, the Sedin's retirement, uh, their final game there in yeah. in uh, in 2018 with that that you know crazy ending and all the the 22s and the 33s lining up and all sorts of stats and time at the times. Um, I mean, the Grizzlies played in uh, in General Motors Place then. Um, uh, not many. <laughs> great moment, but but they you know that that first game uh, with the the last second uh, 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 back, winning basket yep. from Chris King. I mean that that was a you know great moment. They were two and zero at one point. Um,
2: I mean, and did you, they uh, not lose their next nineteen? I think after going two and zero, I think if memory serves me correctly, they went on yeah, a huge You are huge right. Skin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, Jason, I, I look at this and um, you think of all these different cities around North America that are trying to upgrade their stadiums. They're trying to, you know, make it bigger, better than the rest. There is something to be said for uh, what is now, of course, known as Rogers Arena with the history that's been able to get crammed in there in less than three decades. I mean, it's actually a pretty impressive run when you think of, you know, building that building, putting in some big events. We haven't even got into the concerts like U2 and all the that's different, right. you know, that side of things. But from a sporting perspective, it, it really has has become, I guess, the, the diamond, would it be fair to say the diamond of the West Coast?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's probably the busiest uh, facility uh, of its size in, in Western Canada. I mean, it just seems like, you know, three to four, maybe five nights a week, there is something happening in Rogers Arena, whether it's a Canucks game, uh, a Warriors game, or, or several concerts. And, and uh, I don't think there's many venues that can, that can even come close um and then and like you said when you look at the 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 significance of the events that that are also being held there i i think it puts it it's it's a world-class venue in that way
2: well jason you're across the street you're at bc place and doing the simple math here bc place just celebrated their 40th birthday you've been in that you've been in there curating for a number of years now boy probably longer than i even give you credit for but that's also got some great history there
3: yeah, almost half of the forty years. Um, it'll be twenty for me in about a month. Wow! Uh, Congrats. Uh, yeah, thank you. But BC Place as well. Like the, the number and the, the thing I, l- I love about BC Place, which it doesn't really always get credit for, is the variety of events there. Um, you know, they we, we know it mostly for Lions BC Lions games, Whitecaps games, um, international soccer, and international rugby. Um, but the when I, I dug into it a few years ago you know everything from um you know rick hansen's um arrival in in vancouver back in 1987 from his man in motion world tour and the uh, you know the the opening ceremonies of the olympic uh, winter olympics and the Para- winter paralympics were held there uh, as well as the closing um you know the, the the different concerts that have been held there, trade shows. You know, people forget the auto show and the boat show were, were held there annually, as well as other trade shows, and some still to this day. Um, it, it's it's such a uh, uh, a flexible and and versatile venue in that in that sense. I mean, there's some weird ones that were held there. I mean, the Vancouver Nighthawks. Uh, Uh, A short-lived professional men's basketball team played a season there. Not many people saw games there. Oh, interesting. But uh, that was in the Old World Basketball League back in 1986. Devin, I think it was, but uh, all sorts of weird and wonderful events held held in BC Place. And it, and with the new roof, like that venue is going to be
2: around for a while. You know, my first ever time that I went to BC Place was 1994, and I got to see a Major League Baseball game in there. <laughs> people forget. Yes, yeah, people they had, they had baseball it, there for a couple of years. The Canadians played a few games there. There is usually like an exhibition series between
3: the Mariners and, the, and the Blue Jays and others there. Um, you know, it's possible. Maybe someday um, baseball will be back and there. It'd be harder now with with the with the scoreboard, but there there still is a second media box that was set up in the one corner for being behind home plate. Yes. <laughs>
2: Oh, I remember when UBC went out there and took batting practice there with that new video board, and everybody just kind of said, "God, I hope they didn't bring their four hitter here," because nobody wants a ball going off that million-dollar video board. But it was just really cool, and I'm so glad that you joined me this afternoon just to talk about some of the stadiums in the city. Because Nat Bailey's turning 73, and all of these different venues. Sometimes we forget how many special moments that they've housed. And you're right about the Golden Goal. But in addition to that, there are so many one-offs and first times that a you know family's gone to an event together, and it just happens to be under that roof and i just thought we should shine some light on it before we get into the weekend where of course there's going to be tennis down at rogers arena both tonight and tomorrow as well so yes it's a very cool experience and thank you for shining some light on this today jason yeah no problem ralph thanks for having me on Rob fane for jill for about two more hours thank you for making me a part of your friday afternoon couple of months ago, there was a seniors advocate calling for more public funding when it came to BC's assisted living system, saying there was almost no new units built over the last five years, despite more than 50% of a funding increase. So we wanted to circle back on this and have a conversation about the nearly 4,500 seniors that were currently living in publicly subsidized assisted living homes. But yet the data showed that they were becoming increasingly frail with more care needs. And would that care actually be met to speak a little bit about this and just in general the senior care facility and the state of it here uh, across the lower mainland and across the province dan levitt from kin village dan good afternoon hi rob how are you i'm great and you know i love follow-up stories because we obviously get to see the advocate who calls out and then we get to see the pressure put on the government and then we see if there was any result or if there was any progress based on the numbers that had come out you know, as we start to head into the fall right now, there are a lot of families that are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their seniors within the family. And there are some space challenges, from what I hear, at least when it comes to private versus public. Can you shine some light on this and maybe some of the challenges that we are facing?
4: Yeah, I think you're right. We, we are in a space race, if you will. Um, there aren't enough spaces that are in uh, the, the funded long-term care and assist living system so that right now it's really a demand and supply issue that we just have um, come to the point where the the demographic shift has happened at a time when we hadn't built enough spaces, as uh, Isabel McKenzie rightly mentions in her report about assisted living, the seniors advocate, uh, that we have not built that many assisted living um, spaces in the last last number of years, So that um, and the pressure that we're putting on the system in terms of long-term care and assisted living, both of those, those um populations for the buildings that, that their, people are living in, they haven't been built for the population, meaning that in long-term care, if you have a 40-year-old um, building, it was built at a time when you had p- people who were living there that were walking around. They might have been using walkers, but now most of the time they're in wheelchairs. And uh, the buildings aren't equipped for that population, nor the staff and the, and the staffing complement that we have uh, the right for for the building, so there's some transformational changes that are really needed to address these challenges that are going to be with us for the next few decades.
2: I was going to say, Dan, you, you beat me to it. I was just going to say, what are we looking at timeline-wise before maybe the building uh, and the infrastructure needed catches up to those who actually need this assisted living?
4: Yeah, so it's it's, it's interesting. Um, the the assisted living program was introduced um, in in British Columbia, um, you know, a couple decades ago, and it was done done in a way that we wanted to um provide another option between um, long term care and and home care. We we hadn't we, we, we missed that gap. So we filled that in. Um, it a it's a great program um, the The sites i 've visited that are still living in the province that they 're all run very well the people who live there are happy um, it's it 's a great model. Um, our challenge is the people who live there have which is good news they 've aged in place that's that 's good for for those people however um, they 're more acute now they're, their demands are higher again those buildings aren 't really equipped for them, and the staffing aren't isn't there either they don't have lifts. they don't have the infrastructure they need so what we have to do is is build more of them and also have more long-term care spaces where they can go our our challenge is um caring for them in those buildings until we can move them into a higher level of care and and unfortunately we haven't built enough of those spaces faster either funded or uh, for profit or private pay
2: Dan Levitt is the CEO of Kin Village, where they do a real nice job for those who are on their properties. Dan, um, you know, we always look for quick fix and we try to throw money at a situation. But are we talking waiting lists? Are we talking pressure on the government? What can we do to expedite this? Or is it just simply a case of we just got to hurry up and wait?
4: Well, I think, first of all, I, I think, you know, Pressure on the government, pressure on society, uh, pressure on our neighbors, our friends um to talk about this issue to talk about the fact of how do we value seniors in our society um you know even you know look in the mirror, look at our own um, ageism that exists um you know, ourselves about how we look at ourselves, how we look at just aging generally and about older people. I think we gotta you know tackle that one it's you know, one of those last isms that we still um people still joke about we've got to make sure that we're putting seniors really. You know, front and center, and, and treating them equally, no matter where they are on their aging journey. And you know, ageism cuts both ways; it, it affects younger people too, especially in the workforce. So that's probably one one thing we have to do. And then I think we have to make this a priority. Um, you know, if, if I, you know, if you drive around, you might see a, a brand new school um, being being seismically upgraded. Um, the, the high school I went to has been has been fixed and and replaced. Our, our kids went there; um, that's fantastic. But you know, the care home kind of down the street. Um, it's nowhere on the map. It's, it's, there, there's no plans to do it, um, despite the fact that we have um, orders, um, you know, letters of instruction from you know, um, leaders to, for their for um, uh, the minister of health and uh, the, the seniors um, secretary. Um, we have we really don't. We need a provincial plan to replace the, the outdated um, long term care homes um, that are that we see around our community, so that they are modernized. And we need to add capacity, not just replacing them, but adding the capacity because we know the demands are there. And we've got to make sure that supply is there. So, and I think you bring up a really great
2: point. Thank you for this conversation, Dan. The one thing that I will say is obviously the government's identified this as a challenge, but it's one thing to point the finger and say, hey, we need to do this. It's another thing to physically do this. Are, are are we far apart? Is this a case where maybe it's the, the provincial government saying jurisdictionally that this is, has to come from you know the mayor as opposed to the premier? And are we, is it a back and forth? like where is the disconnect?
4: I, I think again, you know, I think the disconnect is on our priorities as a society. That we prioritize youth. We don't prioritize um, aging so much. We prioritize um, acute care. Um, looking at who who are we kind of getting back. Um, back to health in in hospitals, Are do do we have geriatric hospitals? Can you point to any in in, uh, British Columbia? There are very few in Canada, even geriatricians that would work there. There are very few geriatricians. Um, There's 10 times the number of pediatricians as geriatricians. We really haven't made that priority. So to specifically answer your question, um, sure, it is uh, the municipal uh, politicians um, putting pressure on provincial politicians, um, making sure that we're voting for those parties that are really supporting, um, in my case you know, i would call it age care are you supporting really that those systems but we do need to have that comprehensive plan that not just looks at the buildings the infrastructure but looks at you know, how our communities um uh, poised to to deal with these challenges do we have enough um, our our communities the cities we live in can you age in place and right now the the burden really is is very heavily on family members and uh you know, when when if you got married you didn't necessarily expect to be caring for that person um, to the extent that you are. So I think we have to really make sure that there's supports for people living at home, especially couples um, and, or, or your friends, so that, that we have enough supports there. And that's really our biggest challenge. So we've got to be innovative and think about how can we, we use technology that's out there, um, wearables and sensors, for example, to monitor people and think, how can we reduce the burden on people and, um, Kind of spread it more so that we can age in our community and then only when we need it really have to move into assisted living or long term care.
2: It's a great conversation. Thank you for helping me push it forward, Dan. Let's do this again. Anytime, Rob. Rob Fan for Joe Bennett. Forty nine minutes after one o'clock here on CKNW. Uh, I will tell you this, man. There was a stretch in the summer where I think I was filling in for Jazz, and it seemed like every single day that I came in, we were talking about the struggles with BC Ferries. Now, obviously, that subsided as we're out of the the, what do they call that? The high season when everybody's doing their traveling. Kids are back in school now, and uh, everything's starting to get back to quote unquote normal. But it was a tough summer for BC Ferries. I don't think anybody can deny that. The question is, what have we learned, and can it be fixed? by next summer potentially captain and union ships officer deck representative chris class kind enough to join me chris good afternoon
0: uh, good afternoon
2: well i know it's a real broad stroke question but let's just get right to it what did we learn from bc ferries after a relatively tough summer this year
0: oh i'll tell you they uh they need to come up with some some money for the ship's officer component and the rest of the members though. we're like severely behind the the rest of the uh the, the peer industry, as far as the marine industry goes, and uh, they're just not keeping up. They're not retraining, They're not attracting staff. And those, uh, those are major issues. So, um, And then there's the internal internal development issues as well. People are trying to uh, promote themselves within the company. It's getting difficult to get that funding for those employees, uh, approved seat time for those employees. And uh, it just culminates in, in crewing shortages. I think the Vancouver Sun headline was like uh, 40% of the ferry cancellations were due to crewing shortages. So, I mean, they have to get on top of it, you know, providing a reasonable wage or a comparative wage. And, uh, yeah. Well, let's just talk about this because I think I just
2: want to make sure that we get full perspective on this. You're representing the union in one aspect, but I want to talk about just, you know, applying to BC Ferries. I mean, people just think that you all of a sudden get a job. you got to go through a course and, you know, it's a bit of a rigorous course and you got to work your way up as well. It's not an easy industry to just go out off the street and, and fill this populace, right? There's some work to be done here.
0: Uh, yeah, that's correct. So, like, uh, I do represent a certain segment of the Union, which are the ship's officers and mostly uh, the deck officers and, and the captains. And so, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, BC Ferry's own uh, uh, performance term six report, it takes about, about 16 years uh, timeline to achieve a master certificate, which is a captain's certificate. And if you're a, a chief officer, it could be up to 11 years. So uh, you can fast track these programs through the universities, BCIT and stuff. And uh, that becomes problematic too now because the funding is lacking for those those institutions. So um, the timeline to get to those ship's officer positions, it takes, a bit of, uh, it takes a lot of education and a lot of years of experience. And I, I want to bring that to a level too where we have what we call the unlicensed people, uh, but... They do hold certification, and those would be your your deck hands and even the catering attendants. So they all have uh, passenger safety management courses. Uh, there's a bridge watch requirement for the for the deck hands, and those all what make your bridge team up, and they they satisfy satisfy your safe manning document which is prescribed by Transport Canada. So it's it's quite a uh, I'd say extensive uh, journey.
2: Chris Klassen is a captain and union ships officer, deck representative here on uh, CKNW 980. Chris, I I guess my other question is, we know, and and I don't know if you know how many people are currently registered in training. I think that's uh, probably some research to be done. But the reality is, is we know that they're short-staffed. As you said, the headline in the Vancouver Sun was that 40% of those uh, cancellations were due to staffing issues. Can it be fixed by next summer? Are we assuming 2024 is going to be much of the same?
0: Wow, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I think there, there, there'll be issues. It depends on on where the company goes, as far as internal development goes. They they are pursuing a domestic career path, which means that like you have two streams. You can have a domestic license or a a uh, international, and so uh, there are some allowances. And the company is is slowly promoting that. They see the value in that. It's a value for our employees too. Uh, hopefully, they utilize those current streams. And you know. Uh, Hopefully, they they address the training issues because I know people that uh, want to work at BC Ferries. For instance, uh, there's one individual. um, She's working towards uh, her officer certificate. She went abroad to get sea time because it wasn't available at BC Ferries. And uh, this person was issued a termination letter. So we need to encourage people like that to come back to the system. And BC Ferries needs to be proactive as far as wages and uh, retention. I know... I think they're going to have 400 retirements, potential 400 retirements in the next three years. And um, you know what? There's a lot of guys. I've been in the system a long time, and we're all sitting on the fence to see where the wage reopeners are. I mean, most people like their jobs at BC Ferries. They just want to be paid a fair wage. And, yeah, so I'm uh, tentative to provide a prediction.
2: Would it be fair to say that there could be some work stoppage issues if they don't, you know, start to get their heels moving here within the next several months?
0: I wouldn't, I wouldn't say work stoppages. I don't think that's, that's in the cards right now, but there'll be definitely crewing shortages for, for sure. Yeah, they need to get the people. And I know they've tried to, to bring people through internationally and stuff, but that is a long process as well. The job is very distinct at BC Ferries. Uh, a shipmaster, ships officer. Engineer at BC Ferries, it's different than a deep sea. Uh, Actually, the whole marine industry is very, uh, I'd say, compartmentalized. You'd have like bulk cargoes or you can have liquid cargoes, but then you'll have near-coastal row-row ferries, which is BC Ferries. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful that they can make some progress here as far as the wages go and and, uh, attract some more people, but they really need to retain the people they have because it's a transition as well. So you want to bring in new employees, you want to onboard them, but you need the experience from the people that have been here. So we'll see where the company goes. Well, Chris, thank
2: you for shining light on this today. I think there's definitely some things we'll be keeping tabs on, but um, yeah, there's definitely th- some things you've told us today that we'll chew on over the next couple of days. And uh, let's talk again, shall we, Chris? Yeah,
0: it sounds good. And if anybody has any questions, I would direct them uh, for more questions. They can look at the Deloitte report on BC Ferries, and that'll be on the BC Ferry Commissioner's website. It's a pretty good, Good report. I'll give you more details on, you know, what's actually happening at the company. Thanks for listening to The Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to The Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.